Chapter 3, Part 7 to 11 of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Third Intentions and the Lady Mary Christian. Continued. 7. I would like very much to give you a portrait of Mary as she was in those days. Every portrait I ever had of her I burnt in the sincerity of what was to have been our final separation, and now I have nothing of her in my possession. I suppose that in the files of old illustrated weekly somewhere a score of portraits must be findable. Yet photographs have a queer quality of falsehood. They have no movement, and always there was a little movement about Mary, just as there is always a little scent about flowers. She was slender and graceful, so that she seemed taller than she was. She had beautifully shaped arms and a brightness in her face. It seemed to me always that there was light in her face, more than the light that shone upon it. Her fair, very slightly reddish hair, it was warm like Australian gold, flowed with a sort of joyous bravery back from her low, broad forehead. The color under her delicate skin was bright and quick, and her mouth always smiled faintly. There was a peculiar charm for me about her mouth, a whimsicality, a sort of humorous resolve, in the way in which the upper lip fell upon the lower, and in a faint obliquity that increased with her quickening smile. She spoke with a very clear, delicate intonation that made one want to hear her speak again. She often said faintly daring things, and when she did she had that little catch in the breath of one who dares. She did not talk hastily. Often before she spoke came a brief, grave pause. Her eyes were brightly blue, except when the spirit of mischief took her, and then they became black, and there was something about the upper and lower lids that made them not only the prettiest, but the sweetest and kindliest eyes in the world. And she moved with a quiet rapidity, without any needless movements, to do whatever she had a mind to do. But how impossible it is to convey the personal charm of a human being! I catalogue these things, and it is as if she moved about silently behind my stumbling enumeration, and smiled at me still, with her eyes a little darkened, mocking me. That phantom will never be gone from my mind. It was all of these things and none of these things that made me hers, as I have never been any other person's. We grew up together. The girl of nineteen mingles in my memory with the woman of twenty-five. Always we were equals or, if anything, she was the better of us two. I never made love to her in the commoner sense of the word, a sense in which the woman is conceived of as shy, unawakened, younger, more plastic, and the man as tempting, creating responses, persuading and compelling. We made love to each other as youth should. We were friends lit by a passion. I think that is the best love. If I could wish your future, 
I would have you love someone neither older and stronger nor younger and weaker than yourself. I would have you have neither a toy nor a devotion, for the one makes the woman contemptible and the other the man. There should be something almost sisterly between you. Love neither a goddess nor a captive woman. But I would wish you a better fate in your love than chanced to me. Mary was not only naturally far more quick-minded, more swiftly understanding than I, but more widely educated. Mine was the stiff, limited education of the English public school and university. I could not speak and read and think French and German as she could, for all that I had a pedantic knowledge of the older forms of those tongues and the classics and mathematics upon which I had spent the substance of my years, or indeed of little use to me, have never been of any real use to me. They were ladders too clumsy to carry about, and too short to reach anything. My general ideas came from the newspapers and the reviews. She, on the other hand, had read much, had heard no end of good conversation, the conversation of people who mattered had thought for herself, and had picked the brains of her brothers. Her mother had let her read whatever books she liked, partly because she believed that was the proper thing to do, and partly because it was so much less trouble to be liberal in such things. We had the gravest conversations. I do not remember that we talked much of love, though we were very much in love we kissed. Sometimes, greatly daring, we walked hand in hand. Once I took her in my arms and carried her over a swampy place beyond the killing wood and held her closely to me. That was a great event between us. But we were shy of one another, shy even of very intimate words, and a thousand daring and beautiful things I dreamt of saying to her went unsaid. I do not remember any endearing names from that time. But we jested and shared our humors, shaped our developing ideas in quaint forms to amuse one another, and talked, as young men talk together. We talked of religion. I think she was the first person to thaw the private silences that had kept me bound in these matters even for myself for years. I can still recall her face, a little flushed and coming nearer to mine after avowals and comparisons. But, Stephen, she says, if none of these things are really true, why do they keep on telling them to us? What is true? What are we for? What is everything for? I remember the awkwardness I felt at these indelicate thrusts into topics I had come to regard as forbidden. "'I suppose there's a sort of truth in them,' I said. And then, more Siddons-esquely, "'endless people wiser than we are.' "'Yes,' she said, "'but that doesn't matter to us. Endless people wiser than we are have said one thing, and endless people wiser than we are have said exactly the opposite. It's we who have to understand, for ourselves.' We don't understand, Stephen. 
I was forced to a choice between faith and denial. But I parried with questions. Don't you, I asked, feel there is a God? She hesitated. There is something, something very beautiful, she said, and stopped as if her breath had gone. That is all I know, Stephen. And I remember, too, that we talked endlessly about the things I was to do in the world. I do not remember that we talked about the things she was to do. By some sort of instinct and some sort of dexterity she evaded that. From the very first she had reserves from me. But my career and purpose became, as it were, the form in which we discussed all the purposes of life. I became man in her imagination, the protagonist of the world. At first I displayed the modest worthy desire for respectable service that Harbury had taught me. But her clear skeptical little voice pierced and tore all those pretenses to shreds. Do some decent public work, I said, or some such phrase. But is that all you want? I hear her asking. Is that all you want? I lay prone upon the turf and dug up a root of grass with my penknife. Before I met you it was, I said. And now? I want you. I'm nothing to want. I want you to want all the world. Why shouldn't you? I think I must have talked of the greatness of serving the Empire. Yes, but splendidly, she insisted, not doing little things for other people who aren't doing anything at all. I want you to conquer people and lead people. When I see you, Stephen, sometimes I almost wish I were a man in order to be able to do all the things that you are going to do. For you, I said, for you. I stretched out my hand for hers, and my gesture went disregarded. She sat rather crouched together, with her eyes gazing far away across the great spaces of the park. That is what women are for, she said, to make men see how splendid life can be, to lift them up out of a sort of timid grubbiness. She turned upon me suddenly. Stephen, she said, promise me. Whatever you become, you promise and swear here and now never to be gray and grubby, never to be humpy and snuffy, never to be respectable and modest and dull and a little fat, like, like everybody, ever. I swear, I said. By me. By you. No book to kiss. Please, give me your hand. 8. All through that summer we saw much of each other. I was up at the house perhaps every other day. We young people were supposed to be all in a company together down by the tennis lawns, but indeed we dispersed, and came and went by a kind of tacit understanding. Guy and Philip each with one of the Fawny girls, and I with Mary. I put all sorts of constructions upon the freedom I was given with her, but I perceive now that we still seemed scarcely more than children to Lady Ladislaw, 
and that the idea of our marriage was as inconceivable to her as if we had been brother and sister. Matrimonially, I was as impossible as one of the stable boys. All the money I could hope to earn for years to come would not have sufficed even to buy Mary clothes. But as yet we thought little of matters so remote, glad in our wonderful new discovery of love. And when at last I went off to Oxford, albeit the parting moved us to much tenderness and vows and embraces, I had no suspicion that never more in all our lives would Mary and I meet freely and gladly without restriction. Yet so it was. From that day came restraints and difficulties. The shadow of furtiveness fell between us. Our correspondence had to be concealed. I went to Oxford as one goes into exile, she to London. I would post to her so that the letters reached Landor House before lunchtime, when the son of Lady Ladislaw came over the horizon, but indeed as yet no one was watching her letters. Afterwards, as she moved about, she gave me other instructions, and for the most part I wrote to her in envelopes addressed for her by one of the Fawny girls, who was under her spell and made no enquiry for what purpose these envelopes were needed. To me, of course, Mary wrote without restraint. All her letters to me were destroyed after our crisis, but some of mine to her she kept for many years. At last they came back to me, so that I have them now. And for all their occasional cheapness and crudity, I do not find anything in them to be ashamed of. They reflect, they are chiefly concerned with, that search for a career of fine service, which was then the chief preoccupation of my mind. The bias is all to a large imperialism, but it is manifest that already the first ripples of a rising tide of criticism against the imperialist movement had reached and were exercising me. In one letter I am explaining that imperialism is not a mere aggressiveness, but the establishment of peace and order throughout half the world. We may never withdraw, I wrote with all the confidence of a foreign secretary, from all these great territories of ours, but we shall stay only to raise their peoples ultimately to an equal citizenship with ourselves. And then in the same letter, and if I do not devote myself to the empire, what else is there that gives anything like the same opportunity of a purpose in life? I find myself in another tolerantly disposed to accept socialism, but manifestly hostile to the narrow mental habits of the socialists. The large note of youth! And in another I am clearly very proud and excited, and a little mock-modest, over the success of my first two speeches in the Union. On the whole, I like the rather boyish, tremendously serious young man of those letters. An egotist, of course, but what youth was ever anything else? I may write that much freely now, for by this time he is almost as much outside my personality as you or my father. He is the young Stratton, one of a line. I like his gravity. If youth is not grave, with all the great spectacle of life opening at its feet, then surely no age need be grave. I love and envy his simplicity and honesty. His sham modesty and so forth are so translucent as scarcely to matter. 
it is clear that I was opening my heart to myself as I opened it to Mary. I wasn't acting to her. I meant what I said. And as I remember her answers, she took much the same high tone with me, though her style of writing was far lighter than mine, more easy and witty and less continuous. She flashed and flickered. As for confessed love-making, there is very little. I find at the end of one of my notes after the signature, I love you, I love you. And she was even more restrained. Such little phrases as, Dear Stephenage, that was one of her odd names for me, I wish you were here, or Dear, dear Stephenage, were epistolary events, and I would re-read the blessed, wonderful outbreak a hundred times. Our separation lengthened. There was a queer, detached, unexpected meeting in London in December, for some afternoon gathering. I was shy, and the more disconcerted, because she was in winter town clothes, that made her seem strange and changed. Then came the devastating intimation that all through the next summer the Ladislaws were to be in Scotland. I did my boyish utmost to get to Scotland. They were at Lancart near Invermoriston, and the nearest thing I could contrive was to join a reading party in Skye, a reading party of older men who manifestly had no great desire for me. For more than a year we never met at all, and all sorts of new things happened to us both. I perceived they happened to me, but I did not think they happened to her. Of course we changed. Of course in a measure, and relatively, we forgot. Of course there were weeks when we never thought of each other at all. Then would come phases of hunger. I remember a little note of hers. Oh, Stevenage, it was scrawled, perhaps next Easter. Next Easter was an aching desolation. The blinds of Burnmore House remained drawn. The place was empty, except for three old servants on board wages. The Christians went instead to the Canary Isles, following some occult impulse of Lady Ladislaw's. Lord Ladislaw spent the winter in Italy. What an empty, useless beauty the great park possessed during those seasons of intermission. There were a score of places in it we had made our own. Her letters to Oxford would cease for weeks, and suddenly revive and become frequent. Now and then would come a love letter that seemed to shine like stars as I read it. For the most part they were low-pitched, friendly, or humorous letters, in a roundish, girlish writing that was maturing into a squarely characteristic hand. My letters to her, too, I suppose, varied as greatly. We began to be used to living so apart. There were weeks of silence. Yet always, when I thought of my life as a whole, Mary ruled it. With her alone I had talked of my possible work and purpose. To her alone had I confessed to ambitions beyond such modest worthiness as a public school drills us to affect. Then the whole sky of my life lit up again with a strange light of excitement and hope. I had a note, glad and serenely friendly, 
to say they were to spend all the summer at Burnmore. I remember how I handled and scrutinized that letter, seeking for some intimation that our former intimacy was still alive. We were to meet. How should we meet? How would she look at me? What would she think of me? 9. Of course it was all different. Our first encounter in this new phase had a quality of extreme disillusionment. The warm living creature, who would whisper, who would kiss with wonderful lips, who would say strange, daring things, who had soft hair one might touch with a thrilling and worshipful hand, who changed one at a word or a look into a god of pride, became as if she had been no more than a dream. A self-possessed young aristocrat in white and brown glanced at me from amidst a group of brilliant people on the terrace, nodded as it seemed quite carelessly in acknowledgment of my salutation, and resumed her confident conversation with a tall stooping man, no less a person than Evesham the Prime Minister. He was lunching at Burnmore on his way across country to the Rileys. I heard that dear laugh of hers, as ready and easy as when she laughed with me. I had not heard it for nearly three years, nor any sound that had its sweetness. But Mr. Evesham, she was saying, nowadays we don't believe that sort of thing. There are a lot of things still for you to believe, says Mr. Evesham, beaming, a lot of things. One's capacity increases, it grows with exercise. Justin will bear me out. Beyond her stood an undersized, brown-clad, middle-aged man, with a big head, a dark face, and expressive brown eyes, fixed now in unrestrained admiration on Mary's laughing face. This, then, was Justin, the incredibly rich and powerful, whose comprehensive operations could make and break a thousand fortunes in a day. He answered Evesham carelessly, with his gaze still on Mary, and in a voice too low for my straining ears. There was some woman in the group also, but she has left nothing upon my mind whatever, except an effect of black and a very decorative green sunshade. She greeted Justin's remark, I remember, with a little yelp of laughter that characterized that set. I think there was someone else in the group, but I cannot clearly recall who. Presently, as I and Philip made unreal conversation together, I saw Mary disengage herself and come towards us. It was as if a princess came towards a baker. Absurd are the changes of phase between women and men. A year or so ago, and all of us had been but the children together. Now here were I and Philip, mere youth still, nobodies, echoes and aspirations, crude promises at the best, and here was Mary in full flower, as glorious and central as the Hampton Court azaleas in spring. "'And this is Stephen,' she said, aglow with happy confidence. I made no memorable reply, and there was a little pause, thick with mute questionings. "'After lunch,' she said, with her eye on mine, I am going to measure against you on the steps. I'd hoped, 
when you weren't looking, I might creep up. I've taken no advantage, I said. You've kept your lead. Justin had followed her towards us, and now held out a hand to Philip. Well, Philip, my boy, he said, and defined our places. Philip made some introductory gesture with a word or so towards me. Justin glanced at me as one might glance at someone's new dog, gave an expressionless nod to my stiff movement of recognition, and addressed himself at once to Mary. "'Lady Mary,' he said, "'I've wanted to tell you.' I caught her quick eye for a moment, and knew she had more to say to me, but neither she nor I had the skill and alacrity to get that said. "'I wanted to tell you,' said Justin, I've found a little Japanese who's done exactly what you wanted with that group of dwarf maples. She clearly didn't understand. But what did I want, Mr. Justin? she asked. Don't say that you forget, cried Justin. Oh, don't tell me you forget. You wanted a little exact copy of a Japanese house. I've had it done, beneath the trees. And so you're back in Burnmore, Mr. Stratton said Lady Ladislaw, intervening between me and their duologue. And I never knew how pleased Mary was with this faithful realization of her passing and forgotten fancy. My hostess greeted me warmly and pressed my hand, smiled mechanically, and looked over my shoulder all the while to Mr. Evesham and her company generally, and then came the deep uproar of a gong from the house and we were all moving in groups and couples luncheonward. Justin walked with Lady Mary, and she was, I saw, an inch taller than his squat solidity. A tall lady in rose pink had taken possession of Guy. Evesham and Lady Ladislaw made the two centers of a straggling group who were bandying recondite political illusions. Then came one or two couples and trios with nothing very much to say and active ears. Philip and I brought up the rear silently, and in all humility. Even young Guy had gone over our heads. I was too full of a stupendous realization for any words. Of course, during those years she had been doing no end of things. And while I had been just drudging with lectures and books and theorizing about the empire and what I could do with it and taking exercise, she had learnt, it seemed, the world. 10. Lunch was in the great dining room. There was a big table and two smaller ones. We sat down anyhow, but the first comers had grouped themselves about Lady Ladislaw and Evesham, and Justin and Mary in a central orb, and I had to drift perforce to one of the satellites. I secured a seat whence I could get a glimpse ever and again over Justin's assiduous shoulders of a delicate profile, and I found myself immediately engaged in answering the innumerable impossible questions of Lady Viping, the widow of terrible old Sir Joshua, that devastating divorce court judge who didn't believe in divorces. His domestic confidences had, I think, corrupted her mind altogether. She cared for nothing but evidence. She was a rustling, incessant, sandy, peering woman, with a lorgnette and rapid, confidential, lisping undertones, 
and she wanted to know who everybody was and how they were related. This kept us turning towards the other tables, and when my information failed she would call upon Sir Godfrey Clavier, who was explaining, rather testily on account of her interruptions, to Philip Christian and a little lady in black and the elder fawny girl just why he didn't believe Lady Ladislaw's new golf course would succeed. There were two or three other casual people at our table. One of the Roden girls, a young guardsman, and I think some other man whom I don't clearly remember. "'And so that's the great Mr. Justin,' rustled Lady Viping, and stared across me. I saw Evesham, leaning rather over the table to point some remark at Mary, and noted her lips part to reply. "'What is the word?' insisted Lady Viping, like a fly in my ear. I turned on her guiltily. "'Whether it's Bracky,' said Lady Viping, "'or whether it's Dolly, I can never remember.' I guessed she was talking of Justin's head. "'Oh, Brachycephalic,' I said. I had lost Mary's answer. "'They say he's a woman-hater,' said Lady Viping. "'It hardly looks like it now, does it?' "'Who?' I asked. "'What?' "'Oh, Justin.' "'The great financial cannibal. "'Suppose she turned him into a philanthropist. "'Stranger things have happened. "'Look, now, the man's face is positively tender.' "'I hated looking, and I could not help but look. "'It was as if this detestable old woman "'was dragging me down and down, "'down far below all dignity "'to her own level of a peeping observer.' Justin was saying something to Mary in an undertone, something that made her glance up swiftly and at me before she answered, and there I was with my head side by side with those quivering dyed curls, that flighty black bonnet, that remorseless observant lorgnette. I could have sworn aloud at the hopeless indignity of my pose. I saw Mary color quickly before I looked away. "'Charming, isn't she?' said Lady Viping, and I discovered those infernal glasses were for a moment honouring me. They shut with a click. "'Ham,' said Lady Viping, "'I told him no ham, and now I remember I like ham, or rather I like spinach. I forgot the spinach. One has the ham for the spinach, don't you think? Yes, tell him.' She's a perfect Dresden ornament, Mr. Stratton. She's adorable. Lorgnette and search for fresh topics. Who is the dark lady with the slight moustache, sitting there next to Guy? Sir Godfrey, who is the dark lady? No, I don't mean Mary Fidden. Over there. Mrs. Roperston. Oh, the Mrs. Roperston. Renewed Lorgnette and click. Yes, ham, with spinach. A lot of spinach. There's Mr. Evesham laughing again. He's greatly amused. Unusual for him to laugh twice, at least aloud. Russell, and adjustment of lorgnette. Mr. Stratton, don't you think? Exactly like a little shepherdess. Only I can't say I think Mr. Justin is like a shepherd. On the whole, more like a large glossin' ajar. Now Guy would do. As a pair, they're beautiful. Pity their brother and sister. Curious how that boy manages to be big and yet delicate. Hmm, 
mixed mantle ornaments. Sir Godfrey, how old is Mrs. Roperston? You never know on principle. I think I shall make Mr. Stratton guess. What do you think, Mr. Stratton? You never guess on principle. Well, we're all very high-principled. Fresh exploratory movements of the lorgnette. Mr. Stratton, tell me, is that little peaked man near Lady Ladislaw, Mr. Roperston? I thought as much. All this chatter is mixed up in my mind with an unusual sense of hovering attentive men-servants, who seemed all of them to my heated imagination to be watching me, and particularly one clean-shaven, reddish-haired, full-faced young man, lest I look too much at the Lady Mary Christian. Of course they were merely watching our plates and glasses, but my nerves and temper were now in such a state that if my man went off to the buffet to get Sir Godfrey the pickled walnuts, I fancied he went to report the progress of my infatuation, and if a strange face appeared with a cider cup, that this was a new observer, come to mark the revelation of my behavior. My food embarrassed me. I found hidden meanings in the talk of the Roden girl and her guardsmen, and an ironical discovery in Sir Godfrey's eye. I felt indignant with Mary. I felt she disowned me and deserted me and repudiated me, that she ought in some manner to have recognized me. I gave her no credit for her speech to me before the lunch, or her promise to measure against me again. I blinded myself to all her frank friendliness. I felt she ought not to notice Justin, ought not to answer him. Clearly she liked those men to flatter her. She liked it. I remember, too, so that I must have noted it, and felt it then as a thing perceived for the first time, the large dignity of the room, the tall windows and splendid rich curtains, the darkened hopners upon the walls. I noted, too, the quality and abundance of the table things, and there were grapes and peaches, strawberries, cherries and green almonds, piled lavishly above the waiting dessert plates, with the golden knives and forks, upon a table in the sunshine of the great bay. The very sunshine, filtered through the tall narrow panes from the great chestnut trees without, seemed of a different quality from the common light of day. I felt like a poor relation. I sympathized with anarchists. We had come out of the park now finally, both Mary and I, into this. Mr. Stratton, I am sure, agrees with me. For a time I had been marooned conversationally, and Lady Viping had engaged Sir Godfrey. Evidently he was refractory, and she was back at me. Look at it now in profile, she said, and directed me once more to that unendurable grouping. Justin again. It's a heavy face, I said. It's a powerful face. I wouldn't care anyhow to be up against it, as people say. And the lorgnette shut with a click. What is this? Peaches, yes, and give me some cream. I hovered long for that measuring I had been promised on the steps, but either Mary had forgotten, or she deemed it wiser to forget.
11. I took my leave of Lady Ladislaw when the departure of Evesham broke the party into dispersing fragments. I started down the drive towards the rectory, and then vaulted the railings by the paddock and struck across beyond the mere. I could not go home with the immense burthen of thought and new ideas and emotions that had come upon me. I felt confused and shattered to incoherence by the new quality of Mary's atmosphere. I turned my steps towards the wilder, lonelier parts of the park beyond the killing wood, and lay down in a wide space of grass between two divergent thickets of bracken, and remained there for a very long time. There it was in the park that for the first time I pitted myself against life upon a definite issue, and prepared my first experience of defeat. I will have her, I said, hammering at the turf with my fist. I will, I do not care if I give all my life. Then I lay still, and bit the sweetness out of joints of grass, and presently thought and planned. End of chapter 3